0: Hi there, it's episode 116 and today we're talking about raising naturally curious children. You are listening to The Simple Families Podcast, a Q&A style show that brings you solutions for living well with family. Here's your host, Danae Barahona. Hi, Danae here. Thanks so much for tuning in. We are continuing on through our month of play. And today we're talking about raising naturally curious children. And my guest is Nicole Ricaro. You can find Nicole on Instagram. That's where I found her. Her name is naturally curious children. I've enjoyed following Nicole and her ideas for open-ended nature-based play for some time now. So I'm happy to have her here on the podcast today to talk with you all. Now, Nicole's approach is inspired by something called Reggio Emilia, and that is a form of early childhood education. But it's not just a curriculum. It's not just something that's used in schools, but it's also something that can be applied and used in homes. As I've been reorganizing and getting settled into our new play space over the past year with my kids, I found myself drawn to a Reggio Emilia approach because it seems to fit a minimalist lifestyle very well. There's an emphasis on open-ended play and providing materials that will facilitate that play. So that's what Nicole and I are talking about today. But first, before we get into that, here's a quick word from our sponsor. The sponsor for today's episode is Simple Contacts, and you've probably heard me talk about them on the podcast before. I have to say that I was really impressed with Simple Contacts and the app that they have. Personally, I've been wearing Contacts for over 20 years, and I've had the same prescription year after year. Simple Contacts saves me having to go to the doctor year after year to get a prescription for my contacts. This app actually has a self-guided eye exam that you take from the comfort of your own home, and it takes less than five minutes. So not only did it save me time, but it also saved me money. While this isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam, it is a great option for people like me who need a yearly contact lens prescription. And today you can get $20 off. Go to simplecontacts.com forward simple20 and use the promo code SIMPLE20. Again, that's simplecontacts.com forward slash SIMPLE20, and use promo code SIMPLE20. Thanks for tuning in. I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Nicole. I really enjoyed speaking with her. I felt like she and I share so much in common as far as our approach to parenting and our approach to child development, and I learned a lot from our conversation, and I hope you will too. You can find any links that we talk about today in the show notes at simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 116, and you can also leave questions and comments there. I love to hear from you all. So on to today's episode. Hi, Nicole. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, no problem. I appreciate it. Nicole, I am excited to have you on the show because I want to learn more about what you do. I have been following you on Instagram for quite a while, and your Instagram handle is Naturally Curious Children. And I was curious if you could tell us what that means to you.
1: Um, it's actually a really interesting question. I haven't thought about that in quite some time. I've been uh, I've been Naturally Curious Children for about six or seven years, and yeah, it's interesting to think about where it all started and why we settled on that name, but um, my husband and I were brainstorming and just kind of going through names or words that were relative to my personal philosophy and approach with children, and he said something, and my response was, well, children are naturally curious, and that's sort of how we settled on naturally curious children, because it really just falls in line with my personal belief that children have this innate, open-ended desire to explore to touch to learn to just be exposed to endless materials that you know provide opportunities for them to to learn and so I think that's really what naturally curious means to me is that it's this open-ended approach and then using their innate curiosity
0: Right. So understanding and trusting that our kids have natural curiosity that's going to drive their play and drive their behavior. It doesn't necessarily need to be driven by us as adults, right? Exactly. Exactly.
1: And that's you know where my, um, my Reggio inspiration, I think, influenced the name and also definitely my personal philosophy as well.
0: So Reggio Emilia is something that I feel like is very commonly misunderstood. Mm -hmm. I think that it's compared or sort of grouped with Montessori and Waldorf as a progressive form of early childhood education. And I would love if you could give us a little bit of background on what it is and what it means to you.
1: Sure, no problem. I mean, yes, they are definitely lumped in with Montessori, Waldorf, Reggio, they're all put together generally. And they really are all progressive approaches to early childhood, but they all are very different um, in their own way. So the Reggio approach was um, came about after World War II when uh, the town of Reggio Emilia in Italy Decided that they wanted to put a lot of the uh, funds that they received after the war into early childhood and really focus on basically starting, you know, their community with this powerful approach to education for children and really focusing on the children. Um, so basically, the way that that they that they work with children is believing in that they are competent and capable and that they bring something to the table no matter what age they are. And that's, there's basically three tenets to the Reggio approach, and the first one is the image of the child, and that's really believing those things about children and that they, they're powerful people who have something to offer and are able to contribute to their learning, to their environment, and not just this teacher-directed, you need to learn this because this is what I feel is important. Um, and that to me is the most important tenant of the Reggio approach. And I think that can go beyond the classroom into the home, into just, you know, walking down the street and seeing a child and knowing that they have something in, in, to offer and that they're powerful human beings. Um, the, yeah, I mean, it's, it really resonated with me once I was learning about it at that. Oh yeah, I think I've always felt that way. And didn't really have a a way to um, define that I guess.
0: So did you start in another type of program or another type of mindset before you came to Reggio?
1: I yeah I worked in uh, I worked in daycare I was a nanny I worked at a Montessori school I worked in a traditional elementary school so I kind of had all these experiences and then my last formal setting that I worked in was the Reggio-inspired school. And like I said, it sort of had this light bulb moment where all of those experiences that I'd had um, led me to this one. And yeah, this was like the perfect definition of my own personal philosophy.
0: Now, help me understand, there are are not Reggio Emilia schools here in the U.S. There are only Reggio-inspired schools. Is that correct?
1: Exactly. And the reason for that is because the Reggio Emilia approach wasn't, you know, it was never given a formal name like Montessori or Waldorf. It, it's really, you know, it's a town. Reggio Emilia is a town. And only that specific town can be called a Reggio Emilia school because that's where it started. That's where um, everything that they based it off of was what they had exposure to, what their Um, buildings were shaped like, what their town had accessible to them, what the community brought to the table. So, you know, we can be inspired by their approach and take that and do what we can in our own communities, in our own schools. And it goes from everywhere, from just literally what our community has to offer, all the way to laws and what we're legally able to do. And in Italy, you know, the children will walk freely through the building on their own, maybe with a partner, but they're they're allowed legally to do that there, and we're just not able to do that here in the States.
0: So a Reggio-inspired school is it's sort of the style that the school operates under, but there are also people like you who have a Reggio-style approach at home. Is that true?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, I think that's sort of um, even newer than having the Reggio-inspired schools here. And I remember when I was leaving my job as a as a um, ed director at the at my Reggio inspired school. I said, you know, how can I, how am I going to be able to document this at home and and turn it into something that we do as parents with our with our young son? And, you know, when I really was thinking and processing this change in our lifestyle, it made. So much sense to me to just continue to look at my son at home with this same image of the child that he is able to be, you know, an equal member of our family and contribute and listen to his preferences and follow his interests and just, like I said, look at him as a, as an equal member of our family and not just the two of us making all of the decisions and not listening to what his ideas are.
0: Yes. So I'm thinking, I'm trying to, and I've never been in a Reggio classroom or Reggio-inspired classroom, but the way that I'm envisioning it is I've spent a lot of time in Montessori, and in Montessori, children do works, and they move through different works on different trays and different stations throughout the day. But Reggio has a much more project-based approach, right? What does that look like?
1: Generally, it will look like uh, it can come from a child's Interest usually, you know, if the classroom, for example, my I had a two year old classroom, we had a building being um, constructed right outside of our classroom windows, so it was sort of this really natural interest that the children were constantly looking out the window, hearing drills and construction trucks and all these things happening. So it just became a big project for us where we explored all these different aspects of construction from just having trucks in the classroom to reading books, to going on sidewalks and um, learning about tools, that sort of thing. So it really will take an interest that the children have and really just explore that as a study, as a, as a project. Um, And it can last for, you know, a day. It could be a question that a child brings in and we look around and try to find the answer. And that could be the project for one day, or it can last an entire school year depending on, interest level resources and, you know, the questions that they continue to bring to the table.
0: So what happens when different children are interested in different things?
1: Uh, yeah, that happens a lot. And we can usually have many projects happening um, at, the, at the same time. And it might look uh, like maybe one project is sort of the class project. And then there might be many projects going on throughout the classroom. We have um, a part of the day that's called project work. And that is where the children sort of work on different aspects of the project. And that can be, okay, you know, this part of the classroom is dedicated to the transportation project because these kids are really interested in the subway. And then over here, we have kids who are really interested in artists and they're looking at artwork and books and things like that. So you can have more than one project going on at a time. Um, in my experience, even when you have those mini projects, there's usually one sort of general um, topic or project that the whole class is interested in, and that usually stems from when the class meets, and they have what's called an assembly, where it's, it looks like a circle time, but the children are asking questions, the teacher's asking questions, they're researching together. And because you meet as that group every day, usually twice a day, it sort of lends itself to leading to one big class project.
0: Okay. And the class, these projects, they're all open-ended because the teacher doesn't have a goal in mind, right? It's just sort of wherever the, the children take it?
1: Well, the teacher will have um, developmental goals in mind. So the teacher still... The teacher still the adult still the one with the education who knows what the children need to learn to read to understand math concepts to build social skills all of those things the teacher has to keep in mind but generally yes that the subject work is from the children how they take the project you know you might be thinking that as a teacher you have a clear idea of where the project may lead from one subject to the next but then the children will come up with this amazing question and you just totally go in a different direction. And so, yeah, you as a teacher will not usually have an end goal of what the project will look like when it's concluded, but, um, you do have to have those goals and those, uh, the academic and the developmental goals put into, into the project.
0: Okay. And how many kids do you have of your own, Nicole?
1: Um, I have two of my own. I have, uh, he will be eight in a couple days and, uh, five and a half year old.
0: Oh, okay. So when you are, do you homeschool or or do you send them to public school? What's, what do they do during the day?
1: Well, my older son was luckily able to come with me to my Reggio inspired school for four years when I was still working there. Um, Mm -hmm. I worked part time and he came with me with the days that I worked and that was a really amazing experience for him. Um, and then we, I, I left there when my younger son was about one. And so he, they've both been to traditional schools. Um, they're in public school now. But we do a lot of supplementing at home. And uh, that's sort of how I still include our, our Regio inspired open-ended play at home by just you know having it available for them after school and weekends and of course summer.
0: Reggio really appeals to me because Mm -hmm. I feel like it doesn't require so much stuff and Mm -hmm. it's very open-ended and I I guess I want to get an idea of what are the materials like? I know that it's heavily nature-inspired like what sort of materials would you see in a home that was Reggio-inspired or in a school that was Reggio-inspired?
1: So, yeah, there there does not need to be a lot of stuff in a reggio classroom because or a reggio inspired home because you really can use you should be you should be including materials that are open-ended and that can be used for endless endless ways, endless purposes. Um, so, you know, I mean, we have a lot of uh, materials from Grimms, you know, open-ended wooden blocks, there are rainbow uh you know their little wooden people, those sorts of things. Magnetiles are amazing. They can, you know, that's my kids use those every single day. Um but then yeah, there's a lot of nature that's involved. And you know, from the time my kids were here in our home, we had, you know, baskets of rocks and sticks and, you know, recycled materials like bottle caps and cardboard boxes and cardboard tubes, all of those sorts of things that can be used for literally anything. And I guess it would look sort of like, you know, these things are available to them in baskets and or on a shelf, but easily accessible, very child-friendly. And, you know, they shouldn't be looking at something high up on a shelf and not able to get it. Anything that you, you know, we do toy rotation, so things will be taken literally just out of their sight. Of course, if they ask for it, we'll get it out. But um, everything that we have that they're using at the moment is available to them physically that they can retrieve. Um, and yeah, I mean, just the open-ended materials, like anything that does not have one specific purpose can be used. And that could be going on a walk and collecting things on a hike or using, like I said, the recycled materials. I mean, recycling bins are an amazing opportunity to collect uh, toys and materials that they can use for art projects or building or any kind of imaginative play. So yeah, it really just will look like something that you can, there's no set purpose in mind. You can use anything for anything.
0: In Reggio, it's, there's a strong belief. And in your approach, there's a strong belief that children learn through play. So how, I guess I'm trying to understand how to find the balance between work and play, especially, you know, as you send your children to traditional schools, um, is there, have you found a way to balance the two? Because I mean, I know that kids in schools are doing a lot of work these days from a very are a young age and they're not having as much time to move and play. Have you, is that, has that been a hard transition for you or is that hard to see for your kids?
1: It's definitely difficult for me. Um, it was, you know, we did consider homeschool for a short time before my oldest started kindergarten, but it just, you know, it wasn't the right fit for our family. And um, it, but it is hard for me to see, you know, the worksheets for homework and the the work, the amount of work that they do in school, it's it's a lot for me, but I'm comfortable with the amount that we supplement at home, and that we don't put a lot of emphasis on homework. It's my older son; um, he's very capable and does it does his homework usually in five to ten minutes on his own. If it was a struggle, then I would um, be bringing it up to the school and probably opting out of homework because that's not something that I want to have in his home life he works so hard at school that when he comes home i want him to be able to choose what he does when it comes to play and he loves to read and and be outside with his friends and ride his bike and i want that time for his childhood because like you said they're not playing in school i mean we're we're very lucky in our school that he gets they get 20 minutes of outside time a day which is completely crazy to me that that's lucky but at least he does get outside and, and has some fresh air during the day. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard when they come home. I try to work on when, when they're playing, I try to work on more social skills, problem solving skills and, you know, social issues and things like that, that really they don't cover in school and and incorporating those sorts of things into their play. We do a lot of, Conflict resolution with the two boys. They play with they all. They both play with the same things. So there's a lot of um, you know issues that arise from that. But we're constantly working on the problem solving and the conflict resolution. And you know, again, those are things that they're not really doing in school.
0: One of my fears about homeschool is the lack or less amount of socialization that kids are getting. But I also think that kids who are in traditional schools aren't necessarily getting all Mm -hmm. that much socialization either. Is that, has that been your experience?
1: Um, You know, I definitely feel like that. I think that they're spending so much time sitting and working in independently. Um, I do. I think I was a little bit relieved when I found out that they my son is still making friends in the same way that I would expect him to. But I do think that he has a smaller group of friends than I expected. Um, He's just been finished second grade. And when he's a summer birthday and when it comes time to inviting kids to his birthday, he only had two or three kids on his list that he wanted to invite, which kind of surprised me a little bit. Um, But I think that, you know, the two kids, the two or three kids that he did want to invite, he has very strong relationships with. So, You know, I guess it goes back to the do you want, you know, a whole lot of friends or some really close, tight friends. Um, You know, I think that's a struggle that we have as adults, too. So, yeah, I mean, I do think that they don't spend as much time socializing, which I think out in the world could be a problem, which is one of the reasons why I do try to focus on those things at home.
0: Yeah. Now, I know a lot of kids when they come home from school, my kids aren't in school full day because they're still too young, but they're exhausted. And Mm -hmm. a lot of kids just kind of want to veg out in front of their tablets or in front of the TV. Mm -hmm. How much do you I do you get that from your kids wanting to do that? I feel like how do you balance that sort of need to unwind in that way versus a need to supplement like you said you do?
1: I really just listen to them. My older son is very intuitive and he's very <clears throat> he has a very good ability to tell me exactly what he needs and whether it's I need to go lay in my bed and read a book or I need to run outside or you know, I just need to snuggle for a few minutes and I'm very glad that he still wants to do that with me at seven years old. Um, but yeah, he comes home and some days he literally just wants to go lay in his bed and if he wants to do that, that's what, what he does. If he wants to play outside, that's what he does. Um, I usually try, I don't always succeed at it, but I usually try to have some sort of, um, activity or something to offer them, whether it's just art or helping me prepare dinner or cutting fruit. Um, or, you know, I'll take some new toys out or some old toys out of the rotation and and lay them out for them to try to be inspired by. But yeah, I mean, if he comes home and he's just beat, You know, he goes upstairs and he does his thing in his room, lays down, usually reads a book. And um, just really listening to them is what's most important to us and not trying to force anything when they come home.
0: It can be hard to listen to our kids and to trust that they know what they need. (laughs) I know that personally, because I think as parents, if we have our own agenda of what we're going to do on any specific Mm -hmm. day or at any certain time, that that can be hard to find that balance. Like I know every afternoon at 4pm, my kids are running circles around my dining room table. And <laughs> yeah. I just think I'm like, this would be the worst time ever to take them to a restaurant, <laughs> right. you know, and but and that seems to be their daily rhythm is that around, mm-hmm. you know, they are super calm and quiet. And they play so nicely every morning about 8am, every afternoon about 4pm. They're like wild animals. And like, ha- and following that rhythm and finding a balance I think is important because as adults, we sometimes feel like, you know, we're the boss, we're in control mm-hmm. and we are setting the agenda, but then our kids are not feeling our agenda at all. And the result is this huge disconnect and behavioral struggles. Right.
1: Definitely. And that's one of the reasons, like I've, I learned that over time to just listen to what he's telling me at the end of the day, because, you know, when he first started kindergarten, And I would have, you know, time to set something up, some beautiful invitation to play or put some great art project out. And he'd come home and just not interested. And,
0: you know, it was like,
1: oh, my God, I just put so much time and effort into making this beautiful thing for you. And then he just wants to go and like lay down and read a book. Um, So, yeah, that's definitely difficult to sort of follow their um, their rhythm and their pattern. But, you know, he's out of the house for six hours. I don't know really what's going on. They could have had an extra hard math day or, you know, missed outside playtime and he's missing that um, experience. Or maybe he had a bad night's sleep or he's just starting to be sick. And, you know, I, so I just feel it's really important to, to trust you know, how they're saying they're feeling and, and what they, what they need to do. I mean, we do have limits when it comes to screen time and those are some pretty set in stone roles that we have because I've had it get out of control. And, um, you know, that's one thing that we do set a limit on, but other than the screen time, we do sort of just listen to them and let them dictate what they need from us. And it could be a snack. It could be, you know, a walk around the block but you know, I, t- I have to trust that he knows what he needs.
0: I'm curious about your thoughts on how that applies to extracurriculars. I know that when my son was, my first was 20 months old, I tried to take him to a class. It was at like one of those little gymnastics places where there's lots of loud singing and dancing and um, jumping. And he three times got up and ran for the door and was (laughs) trying to leave the room. And it's funny that like, I know, and that wasn't, that was unusual behavior for him because usually he just kind of goes with the flow and I was watching him and then I was kind of paying attention to what I felt like. And I kind of wanted to run out too, (laughs) but, and it makes me think that like when we sign our kids up for stuff like that at any age that we do feel a strong, um, a strong feeling that our kids need to participate and they need to be doing what they're told to be doing like whether it's ballet or karate or basketball or whatever it is you know sometimes our kids don't aren't necessarily feeling it or especially when they're young we've got so many kids in these classes so young now and when we go to these highly structured classes and our kids aren't in, into the structure they're at the gymnastics place and they're on a different set of equipment from the rest of the class you know like how do we how, what are your thoughts on structured extracurriculars for young kids
1: so i think for very young children i do think there's two parts to it there's definitely you know, the need to sign up for things and have your kids interact and, and take these classes because it's just sort of what society tells us we should be doing, that if we're not taking classes with our kids that they're going to be behind in some way. But I think there's also a part of it for the parents to have that social interaction with other adults. And that I think has an important role. But for me personally, I don't, we didn't sign our kids up for anything until kindergarten. And at that point I wasn't even telling my son just that he had to sign up for anything. I said, do you want to play a sport? He really wanted to play soccer. Um, My son, my husband played baseball his whole childhood. So he, you know, was asking, you know, if you want to play baseball, I can coach your team. So he wasn't interested in that. And so he did one sport a season Um, he did soccer one season and then baseball, and it was his choice to do those things. And, um, after that, he decided that on his own, he became interested in basketball. So now he's doing, um, basketball as well, but I, we never forced him to choose anything or that he had to do something. Um, but I didn't. I don't know. I think I think it started out for us that it was sort of just the way our schedule was when I was working part time. We were um, in Brooklyn three days a week and then back out on Long Island two days a week. So it didn't really fit into our schedule to sign up for um, classes at that young of an age. But now looking back on it and with my younger son, I purposely never signed him up for anything because I wanted to wait until he was old enough to sort of make that decision for himself because like you said i think that kids we don't know sort of what they're interested in or what they're feeling um you know i think those the, the places that offer the free trial is probably the best opportunity to sort of get an idea of how how what their interest level is but for me personally i just think having nice quiet time at home is really really the best i mean that's my personal opinion i know that some kids thrive in those classes and that's great for them or they need that structure or they need that interaction with other kids um, but for our family and just my personal my personal feeling for myself too is to enjoy the quiet time at home while you can. There's so many activities that come up when they're in school and you know the older they get the more things they're in they're in band they're in plays they're in you know, there's just so much that they're going to be doing that having those years at home, I think, are so important.
0: Right. And there's just as they get older, there's so little free time and so little unstructured time. And I think about my son does karate and he loves it. And it's been Wonderful for him, um, mm-hmm. it's, but it's very highly structured. He walks in, he barely gets to say hello to any other any of the other mm-hmm. kids in the waiting mm-hmm. room. He goes straight in and they do exactly what they're told and then they leave. There's zero socialization at mm-hmm. all. And that that's one of my reservations about it is that it's all business. And like I said, mm-hmm. I think it's great for the movement and for following directions. And um, I definitely want to continue with it. But I also think that... By doing too much like that, that we don't really have the time to do unstructured play. And that a lot of times just having play dates, which are totally free, are actually maybe even more developmentally beneficial for our kids.
1: No, I agree. And I think that, you know, I've talked about this on Instagram a couple of times that I think just having your kids be bored is so important because that's when real creativity and imagination is able to come out. If you're constantly saying, okay, now we're driving to this activity and now we're going to this activity, you know, doing homework in the car, having a snack in the car, there's never a time for them to sit and wonder what can I do next or come up with these imagination, um, you know, creative scenes in their head or anything like that. And I think that that real unstructured, you know, no one telling them what to do, time is really important for their for their development, for their creativity, for their personal self-growth. I mean, just to consider what you think of when you're sitting there daydreaming. You know, you're bored and you you may revisit a problem that you had. You might be planning something for the next day. All of those things are so important for children to have, and I think there's a lot of that lacking in, in a lot of childhoods.
0: Yes, and I completely agree. I think that as our kids are are i think their lives are changing so much and their free time is is being used so much differently than it ever was before. And I think as parents, we're feeling a lot of pressure to occupy their free time and to be the entertainers. And that's a lot of pressure on us. I know that when mm-hmm. I <laughs> if you asked me to come up with an afternoon of activities for my kids, it would be stressful because I have a lot of mm-hmm. my play as it is. And I really just want my kids to be able to play freely and independently and for them to have time to create and to come up with their own play scripts and schemes and ideas mm-hmm. so that I don't have to be the one doing that. And mm-hmm. I, I, do you think that parents are feeling a lot of pressure to really be the ones leading the play these days? I
1: Definitely. I mean, I think that, you know, and there's, there's the Instagram, there's the Pinterest, there's the Facebook, there's all these things that are obviously making families or parents think that, you know, this is what everyone else is doing. So I should be doing it too. When really, you know, it's so important for us to step back and be like, this is just a glimpse in this person's life. And, you know, I do try to share this on my Instagram that, you know, I'm sharing our best moments and that there's so many other things that go on throughout the day that are crazy, that don't look pretty, that are not nice to look at. And these things are real and these things happen. And, You know, I think that parents just need to take the, try to take the pressure off themselves to be those picture perfect moments all the time, because it's not real. It's not reality. Um, And yeah, to not, you don't need to sit down on the floor and play. I'm not a good player. I'm really not. And, you know, I'll sit down and play a board game because that sort of has a structure to it, but you know, the creative open ended play, as much as I try to get my kids to do it themselves, it's hard for me to to step into their imagination and what they've got going on.
0: So yeah, I'm not I, a good player either. And yeah. I, I really don't think as an adult that I ever can be because once our brains get past mm-hmm. that stage of fantasy thinking, and we grow up, it's really hard for us to authentically return to that. It is ability to imagine and to create the way that kids do.
1: Like I can sit down with them and and build things with magnetiles tiles because it's, I guess that part of my brain is still working, but you know, it's fun for me to build and create something like that. But when it comes to, you know, the imagination and the pretend play and the scenarios, that's very difficult for me. And they don't generally ask me to do that anymore. I think it was more when they were younger. Um, but you know they are get they get very involved with each other on their own and in those in those play scenarios and we've really we've really pushed that for them and you know and my older son was like that from the start he could play on his own as soon as he could play he was able to play on his own and our younger son was very much needing somebody to be with him all the time and we slowly over time just kind of pulled ourselves back and stepped back and reminded him you know you can do this on your own and now at five and a half he's totally able to play on his own uh, you know as much as my older son but do you have any
0: tips for for parents who have kids like that who need a little bit of extra support and framework in order to get the play started
1: yeah, I think it really needs to be a slow transition. I mean, we knew early on that my younger one was a very, um, you know, he had colic, he cried for, well, I should say screamed for about the first four months of his life. And so it was a very different, um, experience for us. My younger son, my older son was quiet all the time I mean, he was just a perfect little baby. And then we had this kid who just needed us so much, um, So it was definitely difficult for us to sort of change the way we approached our parenting. Um, But, yeah, I think just, like I said, slowly transitioning and encouraging that independent play. And it might take a while. I mean, I wouldn't say it was easy. Um, My mom, who watched him one day a week, also said the same thing. She's like, you know, I used to be able to sit back and read a book while the older one was playing and now she's had to be on the floor and involved and even just sitting there that he knew that someone was there uh, was important for him and just slowly stepping back slowly you know sitting farther away or walking into the kitchen for a few extra minutes just so that they get used to that um, that comfort of being alone and uh, on, and playing on your own and creating on your own And it might take, you know, as they get older, it might take suggesting some place scenarios. I mean, he still likes to be um, given suggestions of things like, oh, what should I draw? Or what should I, you know, what should I play with next? And so it might require us saying like, oh, why don't you talk about or why don't you draw about this or that? And but he's able to then sit on his own for a while. And it did take a long time to get there. But I do think it's important and it's not again, something that parents should be ashamed of doing or feeling that they're doing something wrong because that's our job is to teach them to to function on their own as people. And, you know, some people might think that five is too young for that, but really it's about getting him to be able to think on his own without an adult constantly saying, you should do this next or how about we do this next? And a lot of parents do get involved in play like that and are putting their own personal ideas and stories into their heads and then they're never creating on their own.
0: Right. And some kids, like you said, they need a little bit of help. Like I know, like if I dropped one of my kids off in an empty room of open ended toys that might look at me and be Mm -hmm. like, what do I do now? And Mm -hmm. by saying like, Oh, look at that thing over there. That kind of looks like a car. Maybe that maybe you could pretend that's a car. Just giving a suggestion like that Mm -hmm. can sort of launch things off and get kids moving and get the ball rolling. And that's totally okay to start to do that when our kids need a little bit of support rather than saying, all right, let's pretend that this is a race car and you're driving the red car and you're driving Mm -hmm. the blue car. And, um, but letting them come up with the details and the story behind it, but it's okay to help launch things off when they need a little bit of help. Right.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Okay. Yeah. What about outdoor play? I know that you like to use a lot of outdoor materials with your kids. Do you guys spend a lot of outside, a lot of time outside?
1: We do. uh, And, you know, I think that, um, we don't, I would say we don't, I, I don't think we've spent really any money on items for outside. Most of our things outside, um, in our backyard, we've either, you know, discovered at the beach we have a lot of large um, driftwood logs that I've collected and made into a climbing structure Um, we dug up a patch of dirt or a patch of grass and used the dirt for a mud pit Um, we used some bricks and made a you know a little road for cars for them to play on made a balance beam out of a long stick. So everything that we've used outside is pretty much something that we've found in nature or just created out of what we have. Um, Obviously, we've bought them bikes and scooters and balls and things like that. But um, I love that they can go outside and sort of just play with what we have, uh, rocks and mud and, and water and those sorts of things. They love to collect flowers and make flower soup and all of those, you know, uh, typical mud play type things that uh, kids do um, but i mean i think the biggest thing that i've done for them for outside play is is again giving them independence and feeling comfortable being outside you know at this point at at 7 and 5 years old they go outside on their own and they don't need me to come outside with them they can go you know they can go outside and and find something to do i mean we live in a safe street a safe area so there's not a safety concern for me, but I know a lot of parents don't have that, but the fact that they feel comfortable without an adult watching them at all times is really important to me. And we've, again, encouraged that by, you know, when they were younger and they were playing outside again stepping back and, you know, having a cup of coffee or reading a book or, you know, I work from home. So a lot of times I'll be sitting and working on my computer when they're playing and just again getting them comfortable and feeling independent and listening to their bodies and understanding what their what their restrictions are i so, i think have really helped them to feel comfortable outside enough that they don't they don't need us to to keep an eye on them
0: It's interesting that you mentioned unsupervised play because we moved into our house last July and the kitchen is way off to the side of the house and the area that my kids have their toys is in another part of the house. And at first I was having a little withdrawal because we previously had had the play space right off the kitchen where I end up spending most of my time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I said, you know, I'm not going to be able to see the kids play or supervise the play, but it's actually been such a gift to have a little bit of separation because Mm -hmm. I I'm not watching all the time and they argue and they rip toys Mm -hmm. out of each other's hands and I'm not there to see it and they work it out and I don't come running at every little squeak. Um, I don't know. It's just been, it's been a really great experience having a little bit of separation between them and I, I mean, I'm still within an earshot away from Mm -hmm. anything major that would happen and the space is completely safe, but at the same time, they have a little bit of separation from the adults.
1: Yeah. And I I think that's great. I mean, one of the points that you made is, is having the space that they're in be safe. And, you know, that's something that we've always had in our home. You know, there's really not a room that they can't go in. Um, I mean, they don't generally go in our bedroom or, you know, the laundry room in the basement. But aside from that, they're pretty much safe. I feel I feel comfortable that they're safe in every room. So like you said, you don't need to be constantly supervising and seeing what they're doing. And yeah, same thing. I mean, they play upstairs in their room a lot now, which is new newer for them. Um, and I hear an argument starting and I just sort of let it go and let them figure it out. And they usually do. The more independence and freedom that they have, I feel like the more problems they solve on their own. And they don't, they don't need us to constantly say, you did the wrong thing and say, sorry. And, you know, they know when they do something that they shouldn't have done. And, yeah. <laughs> and they and, you know, I know I grabbed that from his hand. So he called me out on it. So, you know, they need, they know how to figure it out now.
0: Right. And they don't but, have to scream mom every time something like that comes up. Right.
1: Yeah. And you know, I think that parents generally make things more difficult for themselves. It's not really the children making it difficult. It's, You know, if you're constantly saying, I need to be in charge, I need to be supervising, I need to know everything that's going on, like you're making that decision. You can step back. The kids are much more capable than most adults think they are. Yeah. So
0: we had an au pair start last month and she's been wonderful, but it's the first time that I've ever really given any of that primary caregiver control over to someone else but um her first week here she went through a a training school with the au pair program and she said that as a part of it they were teaching about american parenting and one of the things that they drilled (laughs) into her head was you cannot leave them for one second (laughs) and so i've been trying to reverse that a little bit and finding this balance between no of course you don't leave them but you can give them some physical space and they mm-hmm. can still be safe and it's actually kind of good for them. So it's mm-hmm. hard, I think, for, we, we are sort of told all the time. I mean, I think we see these articles popping up in the news about free range parenting and how parents are getting arrested mm-hmm. for letting their kids walk home from the park and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's like finding this balance between, especially with young children under five, you know, like how do we give them a little bit of space, mm-hmm. but still be safe? Exactly. And yeah, I mean, I know we live in a cul-de-sac and
1: I know that there are other people who look at us and say, I can't believe they just let their kids walk out the front door on their own. But I, we've gone over what you're allowed and what you're not allowed to do. Where, how far is too far. And, and I trust them because we've, that's just the way that we've always raised them. And I know that they're good listeners. I know they wouldn't do something that they're, have been told that they can't do. I mean, when it comes to fighting and arguing and that kind of stuff, yeah, of course they tried to get away with that stuff. But when it comes to safety, like they know what will, how they will stay safe and they want to stay safe.
0: You've started building that trust from the earliest of days, and exactly that's something that you. It's not just like oh, you turn five and now I can trust you, <laughs> you right? Know, like, that starts from the earliest, earliest of days, and I think sometimes we underestimate the importance of trusting our kids in small ways from the time that they're young.
1: And it does start when they're so young. I mean, you know, the amount of um, safety that parents instill in their house when it comes to you know gates and you know, closing rooms off, all that sort of thing takes that away from them, takes that independence and that that understanding of what they can and cannot do. It takes that away. And, you know, we had gates on the top of our stairs because we didn't want anyone falling. But on the bottom of the stairs, and this was a time when, you know, we weren't really walking away from them when they were learning to crawl. And, you know, it's going up one step. And, okay, can you get back down? Figure out how to get back down. If you can get up two steps, again, figure out how to get back down instead of just blocking it off entirely and not letting them figure it out because that takes that away. It doesn't let them figure it out on their own.
0: Right. I completely agree. And we did that with both of our kids for putting them into toddler beds was, you know, we didn't use the rail Mm -hmm. and they learned how to not roll out of the bed. (laughs) I don't think either of my kids ever rolled out of the bed actually. Not even once. I put the pillows down and that kind of thing just in case. But Mm -hmm. um, when they have that freedom and space to move their bodies and to learn their limits, they do learn them.
1: Right. Right. I mean, and you set them and you explain to them. And, you know, again, it goes back to understanding that they're capable from a very young age to understand, even if it's not with words, but with actions, you know, showing them how to back down the stairs, showing them what could be dangerous for them. Um, You know those things can be done from a very very early on.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. This has been really great. I've loved hearing your insight, and I have really enjoyed following you on Instagram. I think you offer so much good material in small little doses. And (laughs) so I'm I'm gonna put your the link to your profile, Naturally Curious Children, in the show notes. But also, I mean, anyone that wants to check it out, you just look up Naturally Curious Children on Instagram and you can find Nicole there and see what she's up to with her kids. Thank you so much. It was so nice chatting. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thanks for tuning in. This has been episode 116. If you're interested in learning more and getting in touch with Nicole, you can find her on Instagram at Naturally Curious Children and on Facebook as well. The links to what we talked about today are going to be in the show notes. And if you have questions or comments, I encourage you to leave those there. simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 116. Please take a second to leave a rating or review in iTunes. I would greatly appreciate that. Thank you for your support. Have a good one.